Today we continue with part three of Foundation, and we watch as Salvor Hardin converts the planet Terminus from a fledgling world on the verge of takeover to an economic and ideological powerhouse which will one day lead to a new empire. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. My name is Jacob Yunker. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jason Stark. Thanks for listening to us this episode. We are a podcast where we cover the sci-fi novels and stories of Isaac Asimov, one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. I'm a pretty well-seasoned reader of Asimov's novels, and Jacob and Stephanie are relative newcomers to it. And together, we are going to investigate the meanings and the themes and the relevance of these stories. So today, we are blazing our way through Foundation, and we are now into part three. So we had a big cliffhanger last time, and uh, now we've got a big resolution this time around. How did, how did that feel? Was it satisfying to you? Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was fun. Yeah, I am starting to really enjoy Asimov's whole, like, how he always resolves things. You know, so there's like this big mystery and then there's a cliffhanger and then, yes, they have a solution, which is, you know, fairly consistent through the novels that we've read. So I I think I'm enjoying that. Cool. Uh, Yeah, I love this part. Um, And again, maybe it is just because part two leaves you wondering so much. And part three is just so decisive in in finishing that part of the story. So before we get into it in detail, I want to take just a few minutes and give some shout outs to some people who have either commented directly on our page or commented on different social media posts that we've done a little while ago. And I talked about this in our last episode. I asked around on Facebook about whether psychohistory was something realistic and that could work. Um, And one person who commented by the name of David Karagas shared that he actually wrote to Asimov on that question, and he shared a picture of a typed out and autographed postcard from 1983 that Asimov sent back to him with a reply. And the reply reads as follows. No, I don't believe psychohistory in the foundation sense is a pseudoscience. However, I don't think it can possibly exist on the basis of today's knowledge, and it is quite possible it may never exist. In that sense, I don't, in quotes, believe in it. And so uh, a little bit of information right there from the uh, inventor of the concept. It kind of touches a little bit on things we've already talked about. Note that it says on the basis of today's knowledge. Um, doesn't think that it could ever work on the basis of today's knowledge. But that does kind of leave an open window, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's super cool that he actually wrote to Asimov and Asimov wrote back. Yeah. Um, I think I'm trying to remember where I read it. I mean, it could have even just been Wikipedia or something, but that he wrote so many letters and postcards and 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 sent replies to so many people who wrote into him. So you've got to hand it to him as an author who who was appreciative of fans. And so um, one other person who has commented actually has been quite a commenter on our Facebook page and on our different posts that we've been putting out. So hats off to him. 
Um, Chris Sedtall posted on our page with this quote that he pulled from a nonfiction essay of Asimov's. I didn't see the title of the essay and I feel bad. So Chris, if you're out there, if you want to tell me what the title of that was and, and what volume it was in, that'd be great. But here's the quote. You'll get a load out of this. I've said over and over again that I write by instinct only and that there is nothing purposeful or deliberate in what I do. Consequently, I am always... (laughs) I know, right? Hang on. I'm I'm not finished. Consequently, I am always more or less puzzled by people who analyze my writing and find all sorts of subtle details that I don't recall ever putting in, but that I suppose must be there or the critic wouldn't find them and pull them out. End quote. And so... um, Chris got a kick out of reading this and immediately thought of us. So again, Chris, thanks for listening and for thinking so much about this uh, and for um, shooting this our way. Thoughts on this? I mean, are we are we washed up? Um, I mean, there's always there's this, um, you know, theory of meaning coming from books. That is the meaning is somewhere between um, the author and what the author means and what the reader reads. And it's somewhere nebulous in the middle there. It's not always just what the author says. Cause sometimes you go back and say, did I really say that? That's kind of deep or. Yeah, I agree. You know, it is somewhere in the middle. I've read a few more of the nonfiction essays that Asimov wrote that are actually at the end of, I think it's robot visions. It's a whole collection of robot stories of his and it's um, tagged on the end with some, nonfiction essays. And in one of them, I do recall him saying something along the lines of, you know, I never intended for robots to be like this analog for um, for slaves or something like that. And meanwhile, this was after we had done all of our iRobot episodes and we had already talked about the idea of forced labor and all this stuff. And apparently that was something he had never consciously been trying to do. So it's another one of those instances of like, Sometimes the meanings come out in conversation, not just in the intent of the author. Absolutely. It reminds me actually of the movie Galaxy Quest. Have you guys seen that movie? Sure. So you haven't seen Galaxy I know what we're doing tonight, Jacob. Um, uh. All right. So it actually makes fun of Star Trek if you haven't seen this movie. Um, So um, Patrick Stewart actually like didn't originally go and see the movie, but then was encouraged by his fellow next gen crew members to go see it and he reacted to it saying something along the lines of you know this really actually honors the fans because they analyze and they read things and they understand the science behind it and we're just you know actors acting in it so i thought that oh, yeah. that's kind of an interesting reaction all right so let's uh dive into a synopsis of part three uh, as a reminder, we do this for a couple different reasons. If you've read this, but it's been a long time, we just want to give you a reminder of the basic plot points. So as we're talking about it, it's fresh. Or if you don't even care about reading it and uh, you just love us so much that you want to listen to these episodes, um, we want to, again, give you some orientation for our discussion so that we don't leave you behind. So here we go with a synopsis. Thirty years have passed since the Anacreonian crisis began. 
and since Harry Seldon's recorded message was heard and understood by Salvor Hardin. He is still mayor and gained planet-wide approval for his solution. Knowing that the four surrounding kingdoms all lacked nuclear power, Hardin approached all of them and made it known that Anacreon was attempting to force its presence and sphere of influence upon Terminus, and that they might exploit Terminus's nuclear energy to tip the balance of power. The surrounding kingdoms issued a joint ultimatum to Anacreon, withdraw from Terminus or there would be war. Anacreon then removed its short-lived military base on the planet. But that's not all. Hardin also began to share nuclear technology with the technologically backward kingdoms, constantly balancing the power so that each kingdom was afraid of attacking the others or attacking the source of the technology, Terminus. The introduction of such advanced technology was akin to the arrival of magic in the Four Kingdoms, and a priesthood arose around its application and maintenance. It is a situation that Hardin was happy to exploit in order to secure the Foundation's power, and he has since introduced several agents into the priesthood who direct the shape of the religion and instruct citizens of the Four Kingdoms in the operation of nuclear tech, although that instruction is bathed in religious overtones. Meanwhile, the Anacreonian kings are given a high status in the religious system to the point that they are virtually deified in the eyes of the populace. The situation has been more or less stable for three decades. But all is not well for Hardin and the Foundation. Anacreon has been increasingly demanding more technology, and too much show of muscle might provoke them to war. This has caused Hardin to recently order the refurbishing and delivery to Anacreon of an old Imperial battlecruiser found derelict after drifting in space for centuries. Meanwhile, Anacreon has a boy king, Leopold, who is about to come of age, and the royal regent, Weenus, holds a bitter grudge against Hardin for how he forced Anacreon off of Terminus 30 years ago. He is not taken in by the religious system that has arisen, and he is bent on destroying the foundation, viewing the new cruiser as the last necessary piece of achieving that goal. Hardin's problems are also internal. A new political group is gaining prominence in Terminus's government, the Actionist Party, as the name implies. They have been dissatisfied with Terminus's seemingly passive role toward the Four Kingdoms, and they view Hardin's actions as appeasement. They are young and passionate, and they threaten to remove Hardin from power and press their agenda of stronger command over the Four Kingdoms. The options are narrowing tightly for Hardin, and he is convinced that this is another of the crises that Harry Seldon predicted the Foundation would face. The situation comes to a critical point at the time of young Leopold's coronation. Hardin makes the decision to go to Anacreon and meet with Weenus, a move that the Actionist Party views as treasonous and that Weenus believes is a grave miscalculation. Before arriving on Anacreon, however, Hardin does a couple of important things. He instructs his advisor, Johan Lee, to announce that a recorded message from Harry Seldon will soon occur on the upcoming 80th anniversary of the Foundation, something of which Hardin is by no means certain. And he also quietly visits several other planets in the region and confers with many Foundation agents. Hardin arrives on Anacreon and quietly arrives at Leopold's coronation. Soon enough, he is noticed by Weenus, who invites Hardin to converse in private quarters. Weenus quickly cuts to the chase. Hardin has been foolish to so easily arm Anacreon and to come to the planet at all. He has already organized for the new battlecruiser, named the Weenus, to head for Terminus and to destroy it. 
Hardin is declared under arrest, and no warning is to be given to Terminus that an attack is coming. Hardin, however, has already prepared a counterstroke set for the moment of the coronation. As Leopold's glowing throne levitates at the large window to appear before the people, the power to the palace is cut off and the throne thuds to the floor. Power is gone all over the city, except, of course, at the nearby temple. Worse yet, a mob is forming outside the palace, headed by a high priest, demanding Hardin's release and a cessation of hostilities against the foundation. Hardin makes it known to Weenus that Anacreon is now under the interdict, and that no power will be supplied by the workers of the priesthood as long as Anacreon seeks to destroy the foundation. The infrastructure which keeps Anacreon running is controlled by an ideological system that is based upon the Foundation's continued existence. The priesthood is fully sold on protecting it and will not abide the secret attack. Not only is an uprising occurring on Anacreon, but it is also occurring aboard the Weenus en route to Terminus. The ranking priest organizes a mutiny and the captain of the ship, Weenus's own son, is apprehended. Hardin and Weenus watch via hyperwave relay as the captain is forced to acknowledge his surrender and the return of the cruiser to Anacreon. In a rage, Weenus orders that Hardin be shot. The guards refuse, however, and Weenus attempts to kill Hardin with his own blaster, but Hardin is wearing a personal force field, upon which the blaster has no effect. Raving and all hope of victory gone from him, Weenus turns the blaster on himself and dies. Back on Terminus, Hardin is once more hailed as a hero. The actionist party acknowledges that they were wrong, and the heads of Terminus's government gather at Harry Selden's vault. To Hardin's and Lee's relief, Selden does appear. In his message, he affirms the path that the Foundation has just taken, noting that the utilization of spiritual force was an effective tactic, but not one that will permanently solve the Foundation's problems. He reassures them that the path has been marked out for them and that the problem will be theirs to tackle. All right, so I think the most important thing for us to tackle first is if you had an Imperial battle cruiser, what would you name it? I don't know. I think... The skin fold of my elbow is probably the best choice. The what? The weenus. Oh, I didn't know this. (laughs) Jason went to junior high at a different time than we went to junior high. (laughs) Okay. So that's what, so that, that the skin fold of the elbow, this is called the the weenus? Not, not the elbow pit, the outside. It's in, it's also interesting how the word just sounds like the smallness too. I can't help but think like a little Freudian in this situation. Like he's compensating well <laughs> with the with his gigantic ship. With his gigantic ship. A little bit of compensation. I mean he is a very uh, brutish man who's always tackling things with his muscles instead. And I mean even even Asimov was mentioning how no I don't really intend things. I just kinda let it happen. Kinda like free association. We didn't it, talk about weird names in the last episode, but I mean, like, Salvor Hardin, that's a pretty interesting and weird name, and Weenus is no exception. 
<laughs> so uh, it just goes to show you that junior high just never gets easier. It just oh, doesn't. It can't. Young, the young adventures of Weenus, <laughs> like the prequel that, that Asimov never wrote about Weenus in middle school. <laughs> the adventures Jacob. of little Weenus. <laughs> Jacob. Oh. <laughs> All right. Um, I think probably one of my favorite moment, moments from this section is um, at the end where there's this whole thing that's going on between kind of the aura, like this artificial aura around yeah. Leopold's throne and how when the power has been cut off and Anacreon has, is now like kind of defeated and defanged, um, Hardin turns off his little globe light that he's been holding there in the dark. And we see that there is this aura surrounding him. Yeah. But it's not this aura of like royalty or deification. It's the force field that he's wearing around him. And I just thought that was so like, again, fine. Asimov doesn't do things by like long plan, long term design or anything. But that was a cool moment of that just represents how the balance of power has just totally shifted. It was such a cool device. Yeah, so, no, I I liked that one too, and it and I kind of sat and dwelled on it for a while. How how um, technology is used to lift a single man up above others, kind of like hey, everyone. He made a lot of good um, writing points to say like the priests worked the machinery and called it magic or called it like grace or holiness and things like that while they were working it. And so they would call Leo Leopold, the King, they called him a deity while pressing the buttons and switches that made him float. And yeah. then obviously we end up with, um, Hardin holding, uh, the bulb. And now he's the one who's got the same, I don't want to say deity, but they're going to think of him as such. He has all the power. He has all the power, and it's just there in his hand. I want to return to Hardin in a few minutes, um, but one thing I want to do first is just kind of check in on the whole state of the narrative universe. We talk about the whole arc of all of these novels together, yeah. and I just want to um, I just want to touch on that a little bit. And the scope of this story, it's really stayed largely the same over the last two parts. I mean, the foundation has been cut off from the larger galactic population and the scope of the story is taking place in the context of the four kingdoms. Like that's all they can contact. They don't have connection to Trantor. So it's almost like the story is kind of shrunken down for us for a little while as we're reading through the book. And these four kingdoms have become very, very technologically backward. Evidently mm. we saw this in part two where Obviously, they've lost the capacity for nuclear power and nuclear technology. And I I guess I kind of bypassed this at the beginning, like in, in the last part. I just kind of wasn't thinking about it. But I feel like this time around, I can't avoid it anymore in my mind. Because like, how is this even going to work? Like conceptually, how backward do the four kingdoms have to technologically be that the foundation's technology is is as impressive and magical as it is, you know? There was that line in the previous um, section, back to oil and coal, are they? Right, yeah. And and it's like, on the one hand, I'm, I'm wondering to myself, 
is that just hyperbole or something? Because like, how are they even sending ships from one planetary system to another if they're if they're that technologically backward? I'm like, I, have you seen have you seen Despicable Me? Yes. Okay, so this is going to sound off topic, but all I could think of is like how every one of Gru's vehicles that he that he has it as when he drives it or pilots it, it just spouts this like horrible jet of pollution and smog behind it, you know, almost as like a hatred of the world kind of thing. And it's kind of comedic, you know, but just like this ugly, horrible smog emitting thing. It's like, for some reason, that was the image I had in my mind of these spaceships just like sputtering through space to get from one place to another. And I get it. The whole point is to illustrate stagnation. And this is stagnation on a, uh, on the level of knowledge of science. And so, Mm. okay. And that, also ties in again to how it's like the decline of the Roman Empire and the loss of different knowledge and things like that. So I get why it's happening. It just seems like it's a little bit of a stretch for me to imagine, uh, I don't know, these guys shoveling coal or something into the engine room on their spaceship. It was just, uh, it was, it was a little much for me. Yeah. Well, and there's so much more connected. Like if you think of the average peasant of the middle ages you're gonna be in like a 20 mile radius and you know maybe you go to like york and see a king be crowned i don't know if that's where that happens by the way i have no idea um Mm -hmm. or like you know you go see the pope if you're or you go on a crusade but like usually you're just gonna stay in this little bubble but like they're sphere of movement is like a planet or four planets so that's more than we have now so that you're right it does feel a little bit like how can you forget so much it also makes me wonder about asimov's development of ideas of hyperspace travel at this point as well these stories were written between 1942 and 44 and um the first part of the book the last published part, but the first one that you read as you read the novel has a lot to say about hyperspace. But then you get to part two and part three, and it's and it's all about like, oh, well, Trantor is like so many parsecs away, or this planet is like so many parsecs away, where it's like, if it's hyperspace, I don't really think we need to worry about parsecs, you know? Like, you jump from one spot to another in an instant. Like, it almost makes me think that in these parts, he's dealing with it in a different way, like like distance matters more. And so maybe it's just not as developed yet. And that puts a little bit of a different spin on things. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Oh, and by the way, I was talking about the character of Gru in Despicable Me, but that did remind me of something. If you haven't listened yet to our two-episode suite on Pebble in the Sky, go back and listen to it. But there is a character in Pebble in the Sky named Gru And I finally (laughs) realized what Gru reminded me of, the character in Pebble in the Sky. He's this older guy in a wheelchair, bound to a wheelchair, and he lives with his daughter and son-in-law. You remember in Attack of the Clones in episode two when Anakin and Padme go to Tatooine and they meet a a young Owen and Beru Lars and their old father who is um, his old father who is bound to a wheelchair and everything? Yes. It's totally, that's totally what's in yes. my mind. Yeah. Oh, so that's interesting. Like, <laughs> when I think of Gru and, and um, Arben and Loa, that's, that's the image, you know. Hmm. Joseph Schwartz is just trying to 
make things work on on the Marin's moisture farm. <laughs> I didn't think about that until now, but yeah. All of this cross science fiction bringing things in. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to take a look now again at Salvor Hardin. We spent a lot of time talking about him in part two, and primarily that discussion was about the balance between like cunning and craftiness on the one hand over like to like crossing a line into like unethical exercise of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, but it seems to me as though we're dealing with a slightly, slightly different Salvor Hardin um, after 30 years. Well, I didn't, it didn't feel too different to me. It just felt, I don't know, like he, in part two, we had a Harden who cared about the people, kind of, but he cared more about kind of being the smartest one in the room, and he was kind of annoyed by not being able to exercise his smartness, I think, because he saw the encyclopedists as those who were intelligent and maybe even kind-hearted, but they weren't doing anything with it, and that's what drove him nuts. Um, so in part two, when he finally takes power i feel like in part three we just see a harden who is no longer competing to exercise that cleverness and manipulation over other people he's just he just has it well i don't know i think that we can reconcile both of these things saying you know he's a little bit more he's a little bit more leaderly and less manipulative as well as saying no he's really the same dude because he says there's a quote in there where Hardin says something along the lines of, it pays to be obvious, especially when you have a reputation for subtlety. So, you know, that's really where he's going with this, is he has this reputation for manipulation and craftiness. And, you know, this time he just went for it. And people were surprised by that. Which is, I don't know, I still like, yeah, he just went for it, but that is still because he, I don't know, that's like calling the bluff on your bluff. That's still being clever, I think. Yeah, the point is to make you overthink about it. All right, here's my take. So, Jacob, I I do think that you're right in that he is still the crafty, sneak-around kind of guy, Mm -hmm. for sure. He is handling things. He's handling so many things under the table and close to the chest. I'm going to use every metaphor that I can pull out here. Yeah. He's handling all these things so secretively to the point that in true Asimov fashion, there's this huge reveal of the real situation at the end of the story. You know, I mean, like Hardin's craftiness is a part of that. But I do think there is something different about him. And it just has to do with the passage of time and the way in which Selden's first message has impacted him. And I want you to think about how he was in part two. I mean, he's he's young, he's really hungry for direct action, uh, and he wants to see something really get done on Terminus and he knows the encyclopedists aren't going to do it. And the idea of trusting in the Selden plan at that point, it didn't make sense to him. He's like, you can't just rely on Harry Selden and assume that he's going to pop out and save the day. But on the other hand, he and, you know, like everybody else, he was unaware. He was not in the know about how the plan worked, how the Selden plan was going to operate. And so, I mean, he wants all this direct action, but he's kind of fumbling around in the dark at the same time. Like he's trying to understand what is happening on Terminus and and why they're in the situation that they're in. And so I think, you know, the difference between him and the encyclopedists, though, is that he wasn't so 
enmeshed in like their old systems and old ways of thinking. And he was able to innovate and get creative in thinking about how to how to deal with Anacreon. Okay, so then we get to when the vault opens for the first time. Yeah. And and there's and there's Selden's message. And Selden explains the basic idea of how things are working. Like he doesn't give the details because he knows that he can't, but he gives kind of the basic shape. And this is the point where I think something begins to change for Harden. I kind of think about it in terms of like like an encrypted code that you can't get behind and understand what it's saying unless you have a key. Mm. You need a key that that changes the encryption around so that you can decode it. And suddenly with Selden's message and saying like, okay, this is basically how it works. This is the key. This is what Hardin needs to understand how to proceed. And so in part three, I we don't see this Hardin who is like hungry for direct action and and wants to and wants to go get him. Mm-hmm. You know, he is now he is all about the long game. Like we see Hardin kind of just like waiting for his move, waiting for the time when it's right. He is he is playing a long game now. And it's like he's been initiated into the society, you know, like he has learned from Selden, who is the player of the longest long game in history. Yeah. And now Hardin knows how to operate within that scope. And I think for that reason, the actionist party is actually a really nice touch in the story because I think it kind of reminds me of Hardin's own younger days when he was the one who was trying to push for change and push for reform. It shows that desire from from now from the other side, from the side of being initiated into the way that things are supposed to go. Mm. So I think that's really fascinating how Hardin's character doesn't necessarily change. His his MO is kind of still the same. Yeah. But now that MO, which was kind of like right place at the right time sort of stuff, has now been mixed with just the right amount of information for him to kind of take off and help solve the crisis for for the planet. Yeah, and and establish a, a means of protection by way of I, I I guess it's depending on other people to be in a constant tension. Not really like a peace. There's just a constant tension of who's in charge, who's got the power. Yeah. And um I think that, you know, we'll talk about all of the means by which Hardin saw brought solution to the first crisis especially the religious aspect here coming up. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But at a very basic sense, the way that he balances all the power between the four kingdoms and keeps each one of them afraid of the others, um, it's this, it's a really, obviously it's not Salvor Hardin thinking about it, it's Isaac Asimov cooking it up in his mind, but it's mm-hmm. a brilliant idea um, that Hardin has to to not fight but to keep everyone else afraid of fighting yeah. just enough so that so that this tension is maintained. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about worldview and religion and power. This episode of Galaxy is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the number one source for audiobooks and also offers podcasts, guided wellness programs, Audible originals, and more. 
They have thousands of titles, and that includes every Asimov novel that we will be discussing on Galaxy. From Foundation to iRobot to the end of eternity, Audible has you covered. In prep for our episodes, I have primarily been listening to these books, and Jacob has been listening during his to and from work commutes as well. Whether commuting, exercising, or just relaxing at home, Audible is a great way to experience new books as well as your all-time favorites. You can start a 30-day free trial that includes a free title of your choice and access to Audible's content through the Audible Plus catalog. Visit audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast to start your free trial today. That's audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast. So you ready to talk about uh, some worldview considerations? Mm-hmm. All right. So I found this section really interesting, partly because you kind of get the payoff that you don't get in the last session. Yeah. In the last section, it's it's a really interesting discussion of religion, especially religion as power over people. I think on the one hand, we do have more corollaries to Roman Empire type distinctions. And I guess what I really want to talk about is not not so much like the deification of an emperor. I mean, that's an interesting little thing. But I think the way that, say, like, for example, as the Roman Empire declined and as the church, especially in the West, gained more prominence and more power, it became possible to bend the will of kingdoms and populaces by means of religious power and religious belief. So the fact that Anacreon is put on under the interdict, as it as it were, I mean that is that's totally Roman Catholic language from the Middle Ages. Like when a certain kingdom would be put under the interdict, so that nobody could receive the sacraments and nobody could, you know, it's like it's the same thing except in foundation, nobody's going to get any electricity uh, for their houses. Real quick for me, mostly, what what is the interdict? I think it's you, basic, you kind of got at it, but it, I, I need some help. <laughs> it's just like, it's a papal decree, essentially, saying like, okay, you guys are cut off. You know, you've been bad boys and girls, so you are not permitted to partake in the affairs and the sacraments of the church. Which, in the Middle Ages, because the theology hadn't fully developed, like, to where we think it is today, um, essentially means you can't be baptized as as an infant and to not be baptized in the Roman Catholic Church is it's like it's almost like a death sentence it's an interdict is is something that's like you won't be accepted into the church and you're going to die okay so in the book when we see you are under the interdict and then the giant starship the weenus i'm trying to be professional the way the way asimov writes it he writes it as the ship dies. Is that yes. kind of what you're getting at then? Yeah, it's, I think that's what he's getting at, as well as taking away electrical power, like taking away their light source mm-hmm. and all the things they use electricity for. That's going to send the, set them back even further and get and it's, really difficult. And it's more than that because, you know, there's all of this language of, you know, your souls are in danger and uh, and talk of damnation and... And as the priest that's on the ship uh, enacts the mutiny, he just tells people, you know, 
follow me, come with me. You know, your your souls are not fully lost yet. You know, there's there's this system that's been set up where it's not just about the electricity itself, but it is all part of like the worship of the galactic spirit. It's all been tied together so that these technologically backward people, again, you know, the whole analogy maybe kind of it, it has its weak points in this section of the book in this part. But it's but it's the situation that is presented for us in the story. Um, there's there's a lot at stake when the interdict mm. comes over them. It sounds like if if you um if you buy into that that religion, to be under the interdict would really be the closest thing to you're dying now. And I said so. And so yeah. that's the means of power by which Hardin is able to kind of cripple Anacreon when Weenus thinks that he is at the point of victory. He is able to because this is something that's been built up and established for thirty years. And so Weenus is not a believer in this, but the populace certainly is. And Hardin has thus slowly orchestrated a way to take control over the populace of the four kingdoms. And it was never even fully realized up until that moment. Wow. Yeah, it's this really interesting, they're seizing power through people's belief. Yeah, it really just, it rubs you the wrong way, but... Yeah, that history is actually there in in the church and particularly the Roman Catholic Church, of which, you know, Protestants branched off. So, you know, family heritage type thing. So, it, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to kind of wrestle with. It's interesting because we have Weenus who doesn't believe in this because, you know, he was around. You only have to be 31 years old to realize that maybe this this... Religion is not that old, you know. Which is another weird thing in the story. It's like, yeah. come on, 30 years? I almost feel like the per, the presentation of religious belief is just so out there and so over the top in terms of how believable it is after three decades. And to set up basically a seminary in 30 years, as if there's a pedigree of theology in three decades— but, right. um, that, but the point of the religion here is not the religion itself. The point is they set it up to be a power structure. That is centered on Hardin. Uh, it's centered on the mayor of the, the foundation. foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Or at least uh, maybe not centered on, but hinges on. Yeah, absolutely. The, the foundation. It bring, for me, it brings to mind this idea that Marx talks about, which is Religion is the opiate of the masses. And what is an opiate if not an easy way to cope with the crazy complexities of life? Yeah, it dulls the senses. It dulls the senses so you don't have to be sensitive to everything and know, and answer hard questions. And of course, Marx was speaking from the position of seeing how organized religion had been used at the highest levels of power to to guide people's uh, behavior and levels of satisfaction, and and we see that and we see that very thing in this in these two parts ultimately. Yeah, and there's this instinct of protectionism if you consider yourself a religious person to say, well, that's not real religion. That's that's fake religion. But I think last time we talked about the whole idea of the wheats and the tares, didn't we? Mm-hmm. That good things and bad things tend to be mixed together because people are good and bad like they're mixed up we have weenus who is old enough to know better than this religion 
And we have Lee, which is Hardin's right-hand man, who knows better than this religion. Like, they seem to be character foils in my mind, where they're both the type that would rather just go out and face a problem. They're both a bit brutish. One's just really loyal because he's on Hardin's team, and one's really not because he's on his own team. But both have no idea, have no sense of power, have no way to be helpful or even fight against um, this religion that was set up that they know was set up on purpose and designed to control masses, but they can't, they can't fight it. They, they, they can't undo it. And it's really fascinating that we have one on the foundation side who also is like, man, how are you going to get away with all this? You just kind of gave them te- like parts of textbook and then called it mystery. How do you, how are you going to do this? Like they, they, what happens when a smart one rises up? And I think that's why um, when the vault opens and Selden talks to them again, he says, "Okay, this is an effective means of rebalancing the power, but you can't expect it to last. And I think it's interesting that he lifts up religious power and nationalism. I think it's especially, you know, prominent today in our society. But it's interesting that he pulls up those two things as they balance one another and you know, it's, it fits again in with that idea of the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of the Holy Roman Empire. All of that history that Asimov has been pulling on. So as we are moving ahead in history, like thinking about uh, different eras in history, I mean, like what about the modern day? Like, are there any of the things like these themes that we're talking about that kind of give us anything to think about for for our current time period. Yeah, I think especially the percentage of evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump, there's an interesting correlation between politics and parts of the church, as well as this kind of the rise of the religious right and people associating the Republican Party with the church. And That is only true for white evangelicals being associated with the Republican Party. In America. In America. Yeah, there is this kind of troubling association that some people have between those two things. And it hasn't always been great for our country. So we're talking about what could be called the rise of of Christian nationalism, essentially. Yep. Yes, I am. I had actually just started listening to a couple of interviews with um, a guy named David French, a big time historian, a really smart guy. I suggest you look him up every now and then for his opinions. Um, and he, he talks about how we're kind of in a place where if you want to find the prototypical Republican, you go to a white evangelical church because they're just so inseparable. But if you want to find the typical Christian, you wouldn't necessarily go to a Republican party, which is, which is interesting. Cause like, if you want to find a typical Christian, cause that's a big word that takes up the whole world. You can't really go to one spot, one office and find a typical one. You'd have to, you'd have to do a lot of looking and a, and a variety of soul searching to find a typical Christian because it's such a broad term. But right. then he talks about if you flip that and say, if you want to find a typical Republican in America, you can walk into just basically any white evangelical church and you will find a Republican, a a typical Republican. And I'm like, if that's not a good example of conflating 
religion and politics. I don't know what is. Do you mean like yeah. uh, David French is conflating them improperly or the, the state of things is that they have been conflated? I think the state of things is conflated and David French does a good job mentioning that and talking about that and giving us examples. Okay. Yeah. And if you're interested in learning more about this or hearing more conversation about it, that's not our like five minute segment that can't get into all the nuances and doesn't address um, the black and Latino churches in America, which are very strong and they vote differently (laughs) than, you know, the the white evangelical churches. You can look at um, the Holy Post podcast has several really great episodes on this subject as well as what's the other podcast you've been listening to um if you want to know about american church and american politics there's actually a podcast called church politics um i've been listening to them for a little while so if you wanted if you wanted to get more into that topic this is more of a literature review about asimov than that yeah and speaking of which i mean that kind of makes me think of one more thing that i think would be good to talk about here we've been talking about some of the analogies that foundation is touching upon to historical phenomena and and historical time periods and a little bit about um, current religious situations, say in the U.S., for example. But also, I think it'd be helpful to just take a minute and talk about how the presentation of religious systems and power structures in this part of Foundation, what it might say about Asimov's own personal views on religion as um, either as an institution or a phenomenon altogether, because obviously I don't think it's very positive. No. And if we're going to take what Asimov says about not writing with intentionality, if we're going to take what he says very seriously, I vote that we can assume that a lot of his accidental implications are that of free association, um, which is a funny way of saying he's thinking about them and he believes them, even though if he even though he doesn't outright say that in a lot of ways. So I think if if he's going to talk this way about religion um, being a way to control masses, a way to control politics, he prob- it probably reveals that he has a pretty low view of what religion is. Well, if you think about his context, he lived through... A lot. The, you know... <laughs> The um, the Red Scare and all of the fun, oh, yeah. uh, the church versus communism, America versus communism type uh, struggle, as well as if you look at the like state church in Nazi Germany, first of all, they took a whole bunch out of the Bible about Jewish people mm-hmm. and they used they used I think it was Luther to harangue and to further oppress Jewish people as well. So uh, the state church connected, you know, connected with the government, you know, really kind of swung into this Nazi ideology. So you think maybe Asimov might have a lower view of the church because he's seen a lot of damage? Like, I can't, I can't even fathom. I'm only 25 years old. Mm-hmm. I cannot even fathom what it must have been like to to live in the world during world war ii during some of the the holocaust time periods i can't you know when i think of religion i tend to think of the christian church because that's kind of how that's that's the water that i swim in and i think 
you know, the Christian church is, is right on Asimov's mind as well. So that's why I talk about it a lot. Yeah, I think that that failure influenced his view of religion. Mm. But, you know, there, there are other religions. And I'm not sure yeah. how he felt about those. There are right. many other religions in the world we want to point out. <laughs> um, um, I think we're hanging out in this one because Asimov's story tends to reflect a lot of uh, Catholicism and Jewish stuff. And Yeah, and I will say that when we did our biography episode for Asimov, like, we didn't touch on a lot of this stuff. Like, to my dissatisfaction when we were done with it, you know, I listened back and I remembered, oh man, we didn't even talk about his views on religion and spirituality. So it was kind of, um, it was kind of a mistake on my part, but, you know, he was an atheist and he's one of the most, like, well-known members of, like, the Society for Skeptics. I don't quite remember what the name of the society actually is, but, like, you know, quite at least at the end of his life was way more comfortable with saying that he was an atheist. And so, you know, it seems like we get, we get a fair taste of that in this because what we're seeing is the way in which religion, it's, it's so weird because the way in which religion is used is so crafty in this story and so shady that it Mm. almost it's one of those moments where it almost makes you wonder who are the good guys again in this story? Because it seems like everybody is doing some, some, some shady stuff or some bad stuff one way or another. And I think that makes sense with Asimov's historical context. Um, and of course, you know, I don't agree with his views on religion, but it, it makes sense. It, it's, it's consistent. Yeah. I think, I think he at least has a foot to stand on to ask the questions and to point out the things he points out. I find it most interesting that he this story and this part of the story emphasizes religion over what has been frequently called a barbarous planet. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he associates moving backward on the kind of scale of progress includes religion. Right, which makes the Anacreonians and the other kingdoms somehow more susceptible essentially, because they've moved backwards or regressed technologically or culturally, that he uses that plot-wise to say that they are more susceptible to the onset of a religious system. And I think that that can be also contrasted in this same part of the story that we're talking about today, in the moment where the battle cruiser loses all power and, uh, and shuts down. And the quote from the book, right after power is lost, and it says, and the ship died, exclamation point. And the next sentence is, for it is the chief characteristic of the religion of science that it works, and that such curses as that of apparats, that was the high priest, um, are really deadly. And so that seems like a jab to me, essentially. It's like the chief religion of science, it's it's actually characterized by effectiveness. Yeah. And... and that's contrasted with the religious system trappings, which are not. I don't know if I'm misreading that, but it almost feels to me like there's that. that's a little moment of a jab. Oh, I don't think you're misreading that at all. I think that's his exact point is to say science can be treated as a religion when you, can, when you think of it as a worldview, which I think Asimov has no problem doing that, or at least, or at least he's written foundation to, to look at it that way. I'm not sure about Asimov himself. Um, but to call science a, a worldview, 
Uh, and then to call it the chief one because it works, because it's actual experimentation with actual uh, graspable empirical things, uh, measurable things, observable things, um, that you don't really, ha- it's not actually trusting, it's just reality. It seems like I'm, I'm not trying to like put words in his mouth, but it seems like that's what he's trying to point out is science is reality. Um, so when it comes to science as a religion, it's the chief. Which is so interesting, you know? I mean, I was having a conversation with someone about this very thing. I mean, it was a Facebook conversation, so it was like a conversation in quotes. You know, it was like in a <laughs> comments thread. But it was civil. I may, I, I remained civil because oh. that's what I do. Proud of and you, Jason. And I the hope person the other person said, was also civil. Proud of them. Yes, ab- yes, very much. But the person was saying that, you know, in their opinion, that beliefs, that is to say, like a religious belief or a religious system, that beliefs have no place in a world of facts. Oh. And so I, under- I understood kind of what the person was getting at, you know, like <laughs> it's the distinction between what can be proved and what can't be proved, you know. But I guess that just gets down to this kind of core understanding that there is higher value in what can be proved than in what can't be proved. And I guess there's just no real standard for saying that definitively, that that beliefs have less value to them than facts, because it depends on the moment and it depends upon the purpose and the significance of them. Yeah. It's not one size fits all. Yeah. So I, I have two responses to that. My first response is science can't answer why questions. That's not how it works. That's not what science is for. So anytime that you extrapolate from scientific fact, which is real fact, and we affirm that, anytime you extrapolate an entire worldview from that, you get faith in there. You get leaps of logic if you're more comfortable with that language. There is somewhere a belief that you know, it might be based on fact, but there's still that, there's still in there that Kierkegaardian leap of faith. All right. Well, I think that pretty well rounds out our discussion on part three, don't you think? I do think so. Yeah. Excellent. That was a lot more interesting uh, rabbit trails than I thought it was going to be. All right. So we're done for this episode, but um, we're interested in what you think about everything that we've just talked about. Uh, interested in your beliefs or the facts that you adhere to. So if you want to contact us and chat at us, there are several ways that you could do that. You could reach us at contact at galaxypodcast.com. Send us an email. You can make a comment on our Facebook page at Galaxy Podcast. And you can also head to our website, galaxypodcast.com. You can get a link to our email from there. And uh, also, you can hear all of our other episodes if you haven't yet already. They're all there to stream for free. And along the side of the website, you can also see all of the different podcast apps that you can subscribe to so that you won't miss an episode. Yeah, and keep sending us interesting thoughts and in, in, in Asimov's reactions to things. If you've had contact with him, uh, oh, please yeah. reach out to us. That was super fun. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I want to learn more about Asimov. Same here. Well, that's it for this time. So until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. This has been Galaxy. Galaxy.